Uh, Father, uh, we can only approach you today because of what we're about to talk about, that, that you forgive sins. And so today I pray for, for those of us who, who don't know you, who are searching or who are wondering, who are thinking maybe that they can do something to get rid of, of the guilt and the baggage. I pray that today they would hear the message of your cross and run toward you and be forgiven. For those who are here who do know you, but are carrying some of the, the shame from their sin. I pray that you'd grant them complete repentance and give them a real assurance of the pardon that you've given them today. And for those who, who feel like they're doing relatively well, who are walking in freedom, confessing their known sin, we pray that today we'd experience a new sense of awe and wonder at your cross and all that you've accomplished for us. We pray that that would result in us being worshipers of you, people who exalt you and rejoice in you and find our peace in you and, and continue in our quest to live for you. So remind us of the forgiveness of sins today and, and let that have its work on our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our walk through the Apostles' Creed today. It's going to be this week and next week to, to wrap up this series. Um, and today we come to the line that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so, so let's read our passage to start today. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So among these truths that, that are at the heart of our faith is the truth that we believe as Christians in the forgiveness of sins. And to believe in the forgiveness of sins means that we believe in the unpopular notion that sin is actually a thing, that, that there is actually such a thing as sin at all. And so today we will talk about it. We'll talk about what sin is, what it isn't. We'll talk about the good news of our, our forgiveness before God and what that means for our relationships with one another. And, and what we're doing here today really is fairly countercultural. I mean, it's certainly countercultural in the world around us, but it's also fairly countercultural in the church community. Uh, in our day, recommended preaching technique is to avoid any talk about sin. And, and the reason is we don't want to sound harsh. We don't want to sound religious. We want to be really winsome. We want to be compelling to people. So we don't talk about sin. That's not what people want to hear. They don't come out on Sunday morning for, for a bummer like that. But the truth is, unless our view of the world and our philosophy of life actually talks about reality, it's a false philosophy of life. And it won't make any sense of the world that we live in. If we're not living according to reality, then we don't have any shot at all at, at lasting joy. And the reality is that, that sin is mankind's biggest problem. And our biggest need is for sin's remedy. We've probably been, you've probably been in family situations where everybody kind of knows that there's been some major offense, but you're all going to go to like Thanksgiving dinner 
and, and you're just gonna sit there and pretend that there's no issue. We're, we're gonna try to make it through. We're gonna just kind of endure the icy awkwardness in this room. We're not gonna talk about that big thing and all kinds of little passive aggressive shots get taken. And then, you know, there's always the person in the family where it's not passive at all. It just becomes the aggressive shots that get taken because of that thing that, that's just kind of simmering underneath everything. And we can get very used to not talking about the really big thing that we need to talk about and not, not addressing the elephant in the room. Or maybe you've gone to someone's house and the second you walk in there, you can just tell that this couple has been arguing. They, they, you weren't there to hear it, but you can feel it in the room. Like in, in the interactions, you're just kind of enduring that there, there's this something underneath all of the conversation, that the things that they're saying to one another, there's something beneath that. And humanity that's not addressing sin is like that. There, there are tensions galore. There, there's always something underneath the surface. There's guilt and shame and animosity, but then we deny that there's a God, and therefore we deny that there's any such thing as sin against him. And so the guilt and the shame and the animosity continued to grow. We continue to deny reality all the while lives are being ruined by sin. So it's like our lives are being ruined by this thing that we refuse to acknowledge exists. Carl Truman writes that the best arguments for Christian morality are sadly the ruined lives of those who ignore it. And we can try to ignore sin. We can try to deny that there is sin, but it will still do its ruining work. And let's be careful that we don't frame this the wrong way. This is not just society's problem. This is my problem. It does its ruining work in me. It does its ruining work in, in our church, in our relationships. And so we need to experience the forgiveness of sin and grasp its implications. Now that doesn't mean that sin is the direct source of, of all of our problems, not directly, but it is at the root of most of them. And the remedy for sin is one of the most important things that we can experience. When the old Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, how many things are necessary for you, for you to know that you, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happily? And it gives this answer, three. So you got to know these three things to live and die happily. First, how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. So maybe oversimplified a little bit, but, but when they ask the question, what do you need to know to live and die happily? We need to know about our sin. We need to know how they're remedied and we need to know how to live a life of thanksgiving before God for all that he's done. And so in our search for joy, in our search for peace, we can do a bunch of things that we can pretend are working. We can take a lot of placebos. We can convince ourselves that we're getting close to joy and peace. But unless we deal with the big underlying issue, unless we deal with our sins, an awful lot of what we do will be pretending or masking or ignoring reality or numbing ourselves to reality. Scripture talks so much about sin that it, that it presents it as humanity's biggest problem. And understanding how, how sin and how to deal with it, understanding sin and how to deal with it is absolutely key to our joy here and it's key to our joy in the life to come. And this is huge because in our day, there's so much striving for, for wellness, for wholeness, for happiness, and the, there aren't a ton of good results. 
And so for all the things that we do, it'd be super important for us to go back to these categories of sin and repentance and forgiveness to find our lasting joy. Now, in the Bible, there are all kinds of different words for sin, and, and they have different nuances. So there are a number of different ways that we could define it and be accurate, a lot of different contexts where, where the words for sin are used in the Bible. But probably the most concise definition in all of Scripture comes from 1 John 3, 4, where it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. The Westminster Catechism says sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So God gave us his law. He gave us his commands as summed up in the, in the Ten Commandments to tell us what he requires of us, to show us what his holy nature is like, to show us how we should live. And sin is disobeying those commands. It's missing that mark. It's failing to meet those requirements. And sin isn't just on the surface. It actually comes from a heart that's in rebellion against God. R.C. Sproul calls sin cosmic treason. So sin is a failure to obey God's law from the heart. And when we sin, it shows what's in our hearts. And again, in the passage that we just read, sin has done damage. It hasn't just made us spiritually sick. It hasn't just made us unwell. It has killed us. It's made us spiritually dead. Again, in verse 1, he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So sin kills us spiritually. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and the thing that kills you spiritually that thing, just by definition, is your biggest problem. And this really matters because until we understand the nature of our biggest problem, we'll miss out on what our big solution should be. So for example, if we think that we are all basically good people and we just need guidance, then we might think what we really need in life to be able to live a life that's pleasing to God is just more guidance. I just need more direction. I just need some wisdom from someone. And we'll even go to Jesus looking for his wisdom and guidance, which we should do, We'll go to Jesus looking for his example, which we should do, but still not go to Jesus for the remedy for our sin that we've committed. So while we're doing important things in following Jesus and doing important things in learning and getting guidance from Jesus, we won't be dealing with the root issue if we don't recognize what it is. If we believe that, that our biggest problem is not in me, but it's out there, then we'll have all kinds of other solutions. If we think that our biggest problem is not our sin, but it's our political system, we'll convince ourselves that what this world needs more than anything else is to get the right people elected, and then righteousness and justice will prevail and society will be fixed. And I'm all for getting the right people elected. But sometimes we conv could convince ourselves that if we could just get more people to adhere to our ideology, whether we're hyper-progressive or hyper-conservative, we think if I could just get people to adhere to these ideologies, then we would achieve utopia. Then society would be fixed. But the problem runs deeper than just this, the political system. Also, if, if we misdefine this problem so that we believe that our biggest problem is not my sin, but it's the sins of other people or other groups of people, there will be all kinds of bad fruit that comes from that. 
Sometimes we can be really good at convincing ourselves that, yeah, sin's the big problem, but not mine. Like, like, I'm okay. I'm not really that bad. But there are other people out there who are somehow less than me. And then the solution becomes diminishing them and exalting me. We can start to think, I'm the answer and they're the problem. And you saw this in its extreme form worked out in the racism and hatred of, of the Buffalo shooter where he identified people as less than himself and as the problem based on their race and and in his rejection of biblical truth and what God teaches about the image of God, he carried out the evil that he carried out this week. He saw those other people and he considered them to be other. He considered them to be less than him. He considered them to be the problem and didn't see the problem in his own heart and and that's what boiled out. Sometimes also, if I think that sin is not my problem, but it's just these pro- the problem in these other people, I can think that the solution to my problems is to remove myself from them. Well, we probably all have some friends who say, you know, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. Jesus is cool, but, but the Jesus people, my goodness. I mean, they are, are hypocritical. They're sinful. I just can't get near them. I can't be associated with them. Those are judgmental people. I judge. They're, they're draining. <laughs> the problem is, is sin out there, but not in here. I'm, I'm pretty good. And so we isolate ourselves thinking that that will fix our problems. But in isolation, if we're honest, we see the sin in our hearts grow. There's a time when Martin Luther went into the monastery to get away from sin, and his assessment of himself was, that rascal came in with me. Like, I, I, dra- I dragged him in. And I think we saw this during the pandemic. Even those of us who are introverted and isolation just sounds wonderful. It was too much. And we, we saw the sins growing in our hearts. You know, sometimes we'll think that, that I'm basically a good person. And the solution to my problems is that, that I will find happiness if I just prioritize myself more. And then we try and, and we fail to find real joy because sin is our biggest problem. If, if my biggest problem is that I just need more pampering because I don't care for myself enough, then I will try to solve it with more pampering alone, and pampering a sinful heart doesn't solve the problem. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves. We're, we're called to be stewards of all the resources that God has given us, so we should care for ourselves by guarding our minds and our hearts to keep our thoughts holy. It's good to get good counseling that can help us take every thought captive to, to bring it under obedience to Christ. We should be humble enough to recognize our creaturely limits so that we sleep and rest and play and exercise and and care for ourselves in all those ways because God has entrusted ourselves as one of the resources that we're supposed to care for. But there are also like self-care as ultimate gurus who would tell us that our biggest flaw is that we don't focus on ourselves enough. And our greatest need is to put ourselves first. Not to repent of sin and selfishness, but really to be more centered on the self. More self-centered. And it can become very much a religion. Uh, In her book, Strange Rights, Tara Burton points out how wellness culture can actually take on these, these religious tones. And she writes this, she said, The implicit mantra of wellness is equal parts Ayn Rand and John Calvin. You're not just allowed, but in fact obligated to focus on yourself but no matter how much you do, it'll never be good enough. The big problem is not 
sin in, in that mindset. The big problem is not enough self. And in that way of thinking, the greatest command is to focus on the self more. But let's remember we're Christians. Let's remember what the greatest command is. When a guy comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? He says this in Mark 12, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But we can see our biggest problem is that we need more focus on the self. And when we do so, we'll define sin differently. We'll say sin is that when you're not your true self, whoever that is, you, your sin is when you're not living for, for the true you, whoever you are deep down underneath all the restraints that society has put on you. Sin is when you don't live according to the inner light that's the ultimate source of truth that's within you. But Christianity says that sin is breaking God's law. And, and it's true that we should care for everything he's given us, including ourselves, and sometimes we need a nap or exercise or a better diet. Our biggest need, though, is a remedy for our sin. Our biggest problem is that we have failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we've failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so as a result, we've incurred guilt before God. We're dead because of our sin. Ephesians 2, 3, we're by nature children of wrath. And it's so bad that on our own, we can't fix it. When he says that we're spiritually dead, that means that we're not just spiritually sick. We're not just spiritually out of shape. Our treason against God has killed us. And on our own, while we know that things aren't right, on our own, we don't even want the cure. The cure is our enemy. And so we're in really bad shape because of our sin. But there's good news. It's not just that we believe in sin, it's that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul lays out this case that it's bad, we've sinned, we're, we're under God's wrath, but then listen to how his tone changes in verse four. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." So he lays out this bad news that we are spiritually dead and under God's wrath. But then he says in verse four, but God, God is merciful. And mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. God was rich in mercy and he had great love for us. And notice that God didn't love us in response to us cleaning ourselves up. It doesn't say that we started looking for God and then he met us halfway. It says God loved us with great love while we were dead in our trespasses. He didn't look at us and say, oh, I'll meet you halfway. At least they're trying. I'll, 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 try, I'll help them out. He looked at us and he said, they're dead, but I love them. And then he gave us the gift of faith and raised us to life. God never said he just helps those who help themselves because we were powerless to help ourselves. But he helped us anyways in Christ. He helped the helpless. He raised the dead. 
And he died not for those who were seeking him, he died for his enemies. And he gives us this offer that if we'll repent and believe, we'll receive the forgiveness of sins, even while we're his enemies. I mean, what kind of love is that? Who does that? Paul says something similar in Romans 5, verse 7. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't just need to work the rough edges off. We were his enemies, but in his rich mercy, because of his great love, he made us alive. And Paul says, by grace, you've been saved. This is it. This is the core of the faith, the grace of God. And grace means gift. A gift is something that you don't earn. It's something that you haven't, didn't pay for. Paul says three times in the passage that we're looking at today, in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, that God is a God of grace. He says, God saves you, and it's all grace. It's all a free gift from God, not something that you did, not something you earned, not something you paid for. If it's Christmas morning and and family members are all bringing you presents and you're saying thank you, we all know that it'd be inappropriate to then take out your checkbook and start paying them for all those gifts. Okay, how much were the slippers? Okay, how much for that snow brush in my stocking? The M&Ms, come on, how much? Like, if you start to do that, everybody would say, no, you don't even understand what's going on here. That's not what a gift is. We, We buy things and we give them to one another and they're free. You just receive them with gratitude. And we become a Christian by the free grace of God, by the gift of God. Look at how amazing this forgiveness of sins is. In verse five, it says that God made us alive together with Christ. And he mentions a couple more things that he did for us together with Christ. Verse six, he says, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we receive the forgiveness of sins, we're attached to Jesus. And when Jesus was made alive, we were made alive. When Jesus was raised up, we were raised up. When Jesus went to heaven, we did too. So it's almost like, imagine a, a woman is a world traveler and, and then she and her husband discover that they're pregnant and there are a number of places that she wants to go before she has this baby, but she knows kind of the realities of motherhood are gonna probably slow down travel for, for years to come. And so in that first trimester, she decides that she's gonna travel to some places she's never seen. And so she goes to Africa and sees Victoria Falls. She goes to Europe. She sees the Eiffel Tower. She sees some sites in Asia and South America. And then she comes home and then the baby is born. When that baby is born, he's a day old. But he can legitimately say that he's been to five continents. Because he was in his mother. And we, the moment that we believe, are the same way. We're, We're united with Christ. So that the things that happened to Jesus legitimately happened to us. Jesus died, but scripture says that we died with him. That's some of the symbolism of baptism. We go down under the water, symbolizing that death. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but those wages were paid when Jesus died. And if we've received him by faith, then we died with him. Jesus rose and we rose with him. Jesus was seated in heaven and we're so closely united to Jesus that we are seated in heaven with him too. We're attached to him. So it's like everything that Jesus did, we did. Everything good about him was credited to us because we were united with him. 
This is a cause for joy. All the good things that he did, all of his good works, all of his merit before his father counts as ours because we're in him, we're united to him. And then on the the dark side of that, everything that we deserve became his and he went to the cross with it. The punishment that we deserve became his on the cross. The death that we deserve was died by him. He made the great exchange. He gave us his obedience and his life and his resurrection, and we gave him our sin and our death. That's the gift we've received, the forgiveness of sin. And then look why God did all this. Verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God paid for all of our sins. He forgave us so that he could spend eternity showing us his kindness in Christ Jesus. Imagine that you got a call from Jeff Bezos tomorrow, and he said, hey, good news. I want to use all of my wealth to come up with new ways to express kindness to you. That'd be a good day. Like, you you could help him think of a lot of ways that he could express that kindness to you with, with his almost unlimited wealth. But eventually, Jeff Bezos would have bought you everything. You'd have it all, you'd have two of them, and you'd run out of ideas. Like, what else could I get? What else could you give me? But God's going to give us eternal life, and then he's going to expand our capacity to enjoy him in eternity, and then spend eternity blessing us. And he'll never run out of ideas. He'll spend eternity showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace that he's given us in Christ. What a future he's got for us. And he gives it to us for free. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace thing is not just like some, some catchy thing that we made up to make our church grow. Like this, this is the, the heart of our faith where God for free gave us eternal life in Christ. And will spend all of eternity blessing us as a result. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the teaching of the Bible is not only that the forgiveness of sins happens between us and God, but that if we are forgiven by God, then we will extend that outward to one another as well. That that's the consequence of being forgiven people. People who have received grace become gracious. People who have received forgiveness become forgiving. And the classic story that Jesus tells about this is in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, In this story, he tells uh, this parable. He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, One who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, 
they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So there are two loans. One guy gets loaned a talent, about a million bucks. His master wants the money back. He doesn't have it. And contractually, he's obligated to either pay it back or go into slavery until he can pay it back. So he needs mercy here because he can never pay this back. So he gets down on his knees. He begs for mercy. And his master, moved with compassion, forgives him the debt totally. But then that guy goes out and there's another guy that he's loaned some money to. Nowhere near as much. He's loaned him about 100 denarii, say $10,000. And that guy can't pay him. Now, we would think, like, obviously what he should do, he's just been forgiven a million. He's got to forgive the 10000 Of course he'll do that. How could he not be generous and forgiving after what just happened to him? But he doesn't. He, he beats him. He punishes him. And then the first guy finds out. And he says, what are you doing? I forgave you so much. And you refused to forgive a little. And then in consequence, he is handed over to the torturers, which apparently was a job back then. And so, so he goes and, and has to be punished now because he refuses to forgive after he's been forgiven so much. And the point's obvious, that God has forgiven us so much, how much more should we be willing to forgive our brothers? If we are what Christians are supposed to be, which is that we're poor in spirit, and we recognize how much we needed to be forgiven by God, if we recognize how, how bad it was when we went to him and pled with him to save us, and then he did save us, how could we see sin in another and then refuse to forgive them? we've received grace, how could we not be gracious? If we've been forgiven, how could we not forgive? If we've received mercy, how could we not be merciful? So one of the fundamental evidences that we have received the mercy of God, we've received the forgiveness of God, is that we become merciful in forgiving people. So what should our forgiveness to one another look like? Well, it should look like the gospel. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So you say, how do I forgive? What, what should forgiveness look like? How does that look in our relationships? He says the place to look, if you want to know what forgiveness looks like, if you want to find the strength to forgive, the place to look is where God in Christ forgave you. I mean, think of some of the attributes of that forgiveness. When we've repented, we've confessed our sin to God and we've turned to him, he no longer holds our sins against us. So that's what our forgiveness to one another looks like. When another repents, we don't hold their sins against them anymore. It doesn't mean that there are no real-world consequences for sin. It doesn't mean that trust is always given back right away or anything like that. But we don't use someone's sins as a weapon against them when they've, called, came, when they've come and confessed their sin and repented and asked for our forgiveness. 
Also, you, you look at the forgiveness we have in Christ, and the reason we receive that forgiveness is because he proactively went out of his way to forgive us to restore that relationship. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So while we might not think so or we might not sense it, the reason that we came to faith in Jesus is because he proactively came to us first. He pursued us. He took the initiative. He worked to restore relationship with us. He actively pursued us while we were still sinners. And Ephesians says that we should forgive like Christ forgave us. I know that that sin can break relationships among us, and sometimes it does permanently break trust. But we should never be people who have permanently broken relationships with people because we didn't make the effort. We make the effort. We pursue the relationship. And sometimes they refuse to repent. Sometimes there's not much we can do. Sometimes the offense was so deep that things can't be restored to the way they were before. But we, as much as it depends on us, try to live at peace with everybody and go to them to try to restore that relationship. And you might ask, well, well, do I forgive somebody who doesn't repent and doesn't ask for forgiveness? Well, God forgives us when we repent. He does call for repentance. And so if someone doesn't ask for forgiveness or you go and you point out their sin and and it's really clear, but they refuse to, to say that they're sorry, they refuse to turn from that, they refuse to confess that to you, the relationship won't go back together for sure. And, and technically, really, for forgiveness to be completely transacted, they have to ask for it, you give it to them, they receive it. And so if they don't receive it by repenting, then, then it, you don't have that restoration. But we should at least do our side of things. So it's almost like forgiveness is this gift that we wrap up. And we hand it to someone, and then they have to take it, and they have to unwrap it and open it. Now, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they won't receive it. Sometimes they won't confess they're wrong. But we should at least be doing our side of things. And so that means that we don't feed bitterness in our hearts. We don't try to take our own vengeance. We don't get madder and madder because we're we're at least doing our side of the forgiveness thing. We're doing as much as we can proactively to forgive and to restore. Also, Jesus forgives repeatedly. We should be willing to do the same. This is Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And so this verse either means that you have to keep a tally of the the number of times that someone sins, and then when it's like 491, we're done. (laughs) Or it means we just keep forgiving. We just keep going. And if we're looking for the right interpretation, well, forgive as Christ has forgiven you, I've exceeded 490. Like, he keeps going. He keeps forgiving. How often do we sin over and over again and over and over as we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We should be people with like merciful posture like that, with, with merciful hearts like that. And you say, but if we do that, won't we get like walked all over? Won't we get used? We might sometimes. 
And I'm definitely not saying that we should put ourselves in harm's way or always trust people. It's not loving to someone to, to give them a temptation to sin by, by getting close to someone who just keeps sinning against us. It's also true that if every day while you're walking to work, there's a guy who comes up and like smacks you in the face, it would be wise for you to walk on the other side of the road. Stay away from that guy. You don't have to be bitter against him, but also you don't need to expose yourself to that all the time for sure. But proactively offering forgiveness when someone has wronged us is Christian. And people who live like this are totally different for sure. They have totally different values. Self does not come first. They clearly have a very different king. But we forgive because of what, how we were forgiven by Christ. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we become forgiving people from the heart? Well, the answer is always the gospel. Dwell on how much you've been forgiven. When someone has wronged you and they put this like gap between you and them, remind yourself of the gap that existed between you and God and all that Jesus did to bridge it. Preach the truth of the grace that you've received to your heart so that you become a gracious person. Also, trust Jesus as the perfect judge and never take your own vengeance. When we get sinned against, we have a right feeling that justice needs to be done. Somebody needs to pay for that. But we really run the risk that we can spend our lives trying to get vengeance on that person or hoping for it, hoping that they fall. We pay for that sin ourselves by becoming increasingly bitter. But we can trust that he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. We don't have to avenge ourselves. We can leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is his. Piper says, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. And so we don't need to be grudge holders and bitter people because we trust that even the things that we can't sort out in our relationships here, he will come back and sort out. So Christians, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. That has massive implications for solving our big problem, our problem before God, and it has massive implications for solving our problems with one another. And to believe it is not just to say we believe it. It's not just to recite this line from the creed, but it's to live like these things are true. So let's pray. Well, Father, we've often been quick to judge and slow to forgive our brothers and sisters. We notice and we keep score for every sin that others commit against us. Sometimes we punish them by lashing out in anger. At other times, we'll treat them with a silent coldness instead of extending mercy and grace like you've called us to. Sometimes even we've dismissed their attempts at repentance as insincere words. We've held grudges instead of forgiving freely. And at times, we won't even give each other the chance to make amends by graciously showing others their sin. But we've just assumed that everybody would be unwilling to repent. But Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that this is not how you've treated us. Thank you that you've mercifully accepted our flawed and insufficient repentance in spite of our divided hearts. You haven't held our sin against us. Though we've grieved and sinned against you countless times, sometimes boldly and brashly, 
you've still extended forgiveness. You've taken every last one of our sins and you've crucified them in Jesus, your son. And then in place of our failure and our sin, you've substituted Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness. So Spirit, help us to live like this is true. Help us to worship you in light of these gospel truths. Enable us to love and forgive one another in the same way that you have loved and forgiven us. And in place of the record that we keep of one another's wrongs, help us to remember the record of Christ's righteousness, which is totally sufficient to pay for our brothers and sisters' sins just as it paid for ours. Help us to become people who, who knowing that we've been forgiven much, love much, and who themselves are deeply forgiving, even toward those who've sinned against us again and again. Create this kind of radical faith in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, Isaiah 38, 17 says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness but in love you have delivered me from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. <laughs>